a sheet that I made for myself. This is what I do to help me when I look when I read books like this, yeah. because you're dealing with 39 kings. Yeah. That's an awful lot of guys in this. Uh, so let me just kind of make it clear how this works for a moment, so you guys can get rolling on this, and I'll kind of help you with where we're at. This is the line after Solomon's divided heart, and that's a very important note, by the way. That it seems like all three of the kings of the United Empire were all 40, 40, 40. And then after that, it says that Solomon's heart was divided. And as Solomon's heart was divided, the product of that would be a divided empire, a divided king. And like always, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true as I say so. But search the scriptures, let the Bible be your final say. So here's the deal. Ultimately what happens is the son of Solomon, his name is Rehoboam, takes this line. And this is the area of Judah. So it splits into north and south. It would be the opposite of, imagine if you will, that the United Kingdom splits into parts. And let's say that Scotland's one part and England is another. Each has its own king. Up to this point, we've kind of had the queen, but now all of a sudden something happens, and all of a sudden everything divides. That's kind of the idea, except the larger parts of the north. Does that sort of make sense? Now, if you look at the south, every time there's a straight line, a straight arrow, straight down, what that means is, that's his son. So we could kind of say that this is the simplest sense. Yavrebom was a son of Yan, he has a son named Asa, was a son named Yehoshaphat, was a son named Yehoram. Do you see that? And that's chasing the line, and of course that's going to be a very important lineage, because ultimately the lineage from David is going to lead us to Jesus. That's going to give us the idea. The numbers beside it is how long they reign. Now, in the south, we have kings that are highlit, and the reason they're highlit is because they're relatively decent kings. Some of them have a lot of reform, but in the end of it all, if, if you, basically if you aren't highlit, chances are you are just nasty. But in the south, I'm sorry, in the north, there was never a good king. Notice there's nobody highlit there. And of the 19 kings, there isn't a single decent one to rub between them. And this is kind of how it looks. That Solomon has a commander, and his commander's name is Jeroboam. Do you see that? That's with the J, we say it like a Y. And he has a couple sons. But one of the sons' name is Baasha. No, oh, I'm sorry, one of the sons' name is Nadab. Do you see the M there? That M means he was murdered by this guy. So this is what it looks like. Yehoram has a son named Nadab, who was murdered by a guy named Baasha, who has a son named Elah, who was murdered by a guy named Zimri, who lasts a week and commits suicide. Do you see that? From there comes a guy named Amri. He has a son named Ahab. You might be familiar with him. That's, of course, the little cookie that marries Jezebel. He has a couple kids. Ultimately, there's a guy named Yoram, who's murdered by Yahoo. Do you, can you follow that on here? Yahoo! Uh. Notice, though, from there, we have the longest dynasty in the north. Yehu has a son, Yehoahaz, who has a son named Yehoash, who has a son named Yeroboam, the second who has a son named Zechariah, who, by the way, is murdered by this guy, who is murdered by that guy, who has a son who is murdered by that guy, and is murdered by that guy, and then they're taken into captivity. And that's the entire history of the north, be warmed and filled. Yeah? How do the commanders become kings? That's an interesting thing. God actually appoints this guy. But a lot of times they do it through murder. You know, it's like, you know, let's face it, this is the guy who's most equipped to kill people, and he also has a key to your door. You know, that's, that's a pretty good open door for a guy to do that, and that's going to happen a lot. Okay. Now, so you're looking at this and you're like, what whoop de do? Now, maybe you're not a big history person. I'll be honest, I wasn't a really big history person until I actually found Jesus, or until he found me. Uh, although he knew where I was the whole time. But something happens when you fall in love. When you fall in love, you really want to know everything. Because the more that you know, well, the deeper you get into someone. And the more you understand the impetus behind someone's actions. You're like, oh, I see why that would have a negative reaction. I can see that from your past. 
Does that make sense? So let me lay this out for you in a moment in a way that we can kind of get an idea. Notice, by the way, it gets a little convoluted about right here. Do you see all that? And that is because during the time of Ahab, it's also during the reign of Jehoshaphat, and they basically marry, each other. They have their, they marry off their kids. Ahab has a daughter. I mentioned that's Jezebel's daughter. Her name is Atalia. And she marries Jehoshaphat's son. Now, they normally, traditionally, the reason you do that is so that nobody invades you. Let's face it, no one's going to invade if your daughter's there. That's kind of the idea. Ultimately, what happens is they have a kid, and ultimately, when that kid gets killed, Grandma, at that point, or, uh, that's Atalia, that's the daughter, kills everybody else in the Davidic family line, or so she thinks. So that she thinks, basically, she can take over. And she is the only woman in all 39 of these people to sit on the throne as a woman. Unfortunately, she does it the good old-fashioned way. She kills everybody to get there. Unfortunately, that's never the way God anticipates or ever wants to be. Ultimately, she is taken out by Yahweh, and that's the long arrow over here. And Yahweh actually winds up killing, if you think about it, the two kings at the time. And then he takes over the throne of the north, but in the south, there's a vacancy. And ultimately, that vacancy is filled by Grandma, Gangsta Granny, and then ultimately, during that time, one child is hidden. There's only one kid left in the lineage, and his name is Yoash. Yoash, by the way, was one year old, and he's hidden by the high priest and his high priest's wife. Uh, they're hidden in the one place Grandma's not going to look, and that's the temple. She has eluded it to build a temple of Baal, and at this point now, she really isn't going to go there. So the kid's raised, but by the time he turns seven, they've had enough. And this boy takes the throne at age seven yeah. and rules for 40 years. How is that bad? What's that? How, how did he come on the throne? Well, you know, that's a good question. What they do is that high priest, his name is Yehoiada, which is a way cool name, uh, which, by the way, means God knows. To this day, if you actually say, like, I know or I don't know, I know I don't know is like, Anilo Yada. And what that means is, I don't know. Yada is still to this day, or they say, Yada, Yada, Yada. That means to know. So, Yehoiada literally means God knows. Oh, God knows. And what he does is he sets up this coup during a shift change during Shabbat. There's obviously one group of priests that are there and they're getting off shift. Another group of priests that are there coming on shift. It's the one time with the most amount of those guys and one time without suspicion. And they go and they take this kid out at seven and say, this is your new king. And everybody's excited about it except for, well, actually she's quite excited too, just not in a good way. She yells, treason, treason. And they're like, don't kill her in the temple. So they pull her out and they kill her elsewhere. And the boy takes the throne. Wow. And it tells us, by the way, that this boy, Yehoash, and Yehoash and Yehoash, you can have host almost any name like that, is the same name. You could say Yeshua or Yehoshua, and it's the same name. And the only reason they're doing it here, and I'll explain why in a moment, is, is because there's names in, in both that have the same. So they're trying to add a hoe on one side so you can go, which one is it again? But that's the point. So it says he actually serves the Lord and walks with the Lord as long as Yehoiada, the high priest, is alive. And so he restores the temple. But again, that's where he was hidden for the last six years. And it's interesting because it's a seven-year period. And at the end of that seven-year period, the rightful king takes the throne and the evil empire is destroyed. Hmm. Sounds a lot like the end times. Anyways, with that in mind, as long as Yehoiada is on the throne, I'm sorry, as a high priest, this boy walks with him. But as soon as Yehoiada dies, Yoash becomes stupid. And we call that, at least where we are, Yehoiada complex. Somewhere down the line, it's got to be your faith. 
It could start as your mom's faith, your dad's faith, your friend's faith. But somewhere down the line, they won't be in front of you like they are at the moment. And you can't use that as an excuse to walk away from God. So, what do you do? Let me put you where at. Time-wise, we're looking... And so, the first half of this chapter, by the way, because as we go chapter by chapter, we can't avoid anything, basically covers that dynasty of Yahoo. So, it's that line right there. So, he just kind of goes, let me walk you through this with a couple keynotes. Then he's going to go to the main point, which will be the death of Elisha. And that's our chapter. We're roughly for you. The dynasty of Yahoo, by the way, is roughly 841 to 739 BC. Roughly 100 years. The longest dynasty, obviously, in the Northern Empire. In, in the South, that boy has now passed off sooner or later, and he's going to hand his throne to his son, Amatio, who will hand his throne to a guy who becomes a leper. And so, what's, what's the big deal? Why does that apply to us even before we jump into this? Because we're going to read around, which means you'll get first. Consider this. You remember what it was like when you were actually 100% men, 100% the Lord? Where everything was Jesus. There was no hidden pockets. There was no part that somehow you kind of kept for yourself. It was just like, yeah, Jesus, you can have it all, and you meant all when you said all. And you never felt like at any point in there you were lying. There was something so free about that. Mm-hmm. Then there are these things. When God speaks about a king in Deuteronomy 17, he says there are certain things a king cannot amass. He can't amass gold for himself. He can't amass girls from himself from other countries. They'll pull his heart away. And he can't amass chariots for himself. Okay, don't go to Egypt and get your horses and chariots. You know why? Because in the end of it all, it's the glory, it's the gold, it's the girls, but it's what you think love is, it's where you think your security is, and where you think your importance is. When one of those starts to tag off, so does your heart. And when your heart starts to tag off, you have inside of you a divided heart. And you know what the ultimate product of that is? A divided life. So all of a sudden, you're singing the same songs, but they don't even mean anything anymore. I mean, there was a time those songs brought tears to your eyes because you meant it when you said it. I mean, it was like, God, take all. But now when you say all, you know it's like all except this caveat that I've left inside of me. And there's something about that. You know it's like, man, this is, you're forcing it, you're pushing it. This is not right. So what you have is this weird divided empire that we're looking at, but really in the end of it all, it kind of just shows our hearts. It shows that part that actually, maybe that part of us that really loves God that goes on and off. That somehow in it, that other part wins, and we unite with a part we should never unite with. We start going out with someone, or hanging out with someone, or opening our heart to someone we know is totally not going to lead us to closer to Christ. And we latch onto something that even could call itself Christian, but it doesn't challenge our walk. It doesn't push us to run the race to win, but instead it does something really sad. It gives us this false sense that we could give part and it's still the same thing. Have you ever had any relationship you gave part of and it was still as okay? And how do you respect the person you're giving part to and if they actually think everything's cool with that? 
how can that be? How can you respect a person for that? How much more God who knows that you're fallen? But you're not fooling Him. And you unite with these goofy things and the product of it is that it starts killing your legacy. It starts killing the fruit that God wants to bear through you. It starts chasing away your influence. And somewhere down the line, God does these drastic things like a Yahoo, which seems like all of a sudden God land blasts everything in your life. You ever have those moments? Where all of a sudden you like felt like you blinked and then everything was just gone. And you're like, God's like, you do know that every time this happens, you have an opportunity to reinvent yourself. There's a grace in that. Would you like to reinvent yourself full on with me this time? Or do you want to go back to this divided thing? The spoiler alert, both sides are going to lose. And let me just say, a partial revival is no great revival. So we'll read through it. And I'll point out some points once we get around to it. But, but please hear me on this. No matter where you're at, if you've never read and you're just going to be reading a bunch of goofy names, don't worry about you know, assassinating the names. If you run into them in heaven, they have to forgive you anyway. Uh, a lot of these guys, I, I have kind of doubts you might run into there. But let's read around. And we'll read through the chapter and then we'll develop it, okay? 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 1. And if you can pull out that little handout or you use your Bible, you'll have it there. In the 23rd year of Yoash, the son of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, Yehorhaz, the son of Yehu, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 17 years. Yeah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel's sin, he did not depart from them. Um, I think mine's a different version, but I'll read it anyway. Okay. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and for a long time he kept them under the power of Hazel, king of Aram, and Ben Hashad, his son. So, you know, Seated with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, so he saw the essential of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed him. Then the Lord gave Israel a deliverance, so escaped from under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in the tents and support. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the city of the house of Yerbaud, who had made Israel sin, but walked in it, and the wicked images remained in Samaria. For he left the army of only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like dust, like freshness. Now the rest of the acts of Jehovah's, all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehovah has rested with his fathers. And they buried him in Samaria. Then Yoash, his son, reigned in his place. Yeah, let's go. We'll go through the whole chapter. In the 37th year of Yoash, king of Judah, Yehoash, the son of Yehoahaz, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 16 years. As for the other events of the reign of Josiah, no, Jehoash, 
All he did and his achievements, including his war against Mariah King of Judah, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Okay, I'm going to stop there for a moment. Let me at least clear this up, this particular part. Look at that list for a moment. If you pull this out, and again, it's just helping you get it. What he says is, this guy had this son, had this son, had this son. So he's, he's basically walking you through almost the entire dynasty yeah. of the... Yeah, did you get that? Yeah. Now... Once, now that you got that, let me at least cover a couple points in this, because here's the issue on this. First of all, look at verse 1 with me. In the 23rd year of Yoash, the son of Yehazia, king of Yehuda, Yehoahaz, the son of Yehu, became king. Now, the guy in the south, his name is Yoash. Ultimately, he will reign during the beginning of the reign of Yoash in the north. And you go, what the heck? Why do people keep naming people the same thing on both sides? And I think this is the point. I'm in prayer, I'm walking with this, and I realize when you walk with a divided heart, it is hard to tell the good guys from the bad guys anymore. You can't even tell which is the good guy and which is the bad guy. Because somewhere in it, they all kind of look the same. Somewhere in it, they're all kind of taken, or they're not, or you're playing the game, because you can't even see purity for purity anymore. So what you think is that every person who's nice to you comes with strings attached. Do you know how hard that is? I can't wait for heaven when I could just love people, wrap my arms around people, and it's not weird and awkward. Where you could just be like, oh, man, I just want you to know I love you and I'm so thankful for you. And it's not like people are like, mother! You know, it's, there's something cool about that. But you realize when you get to that place where you're like, you'd put strings attached, well, it's hard to believe it could happen any other way. And so what happens is he has this kid. And notice what it says in verse 2. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he followed the sins of Jeroboam. Does anyone know what the sins of Jeroboam are? Do you know what's the most mentioned sin in all of Scripture? As far as attributed to a person? Well, actually, it was laying out golden calves. So what happened is, is once, yeah, exactly, when the kingdom divided, the northern kingdom, the king's like, wow, if people go down to Jerusalem, which you've been at, if people go down to Jerusalem, they're going to bail on me and kill me. So I'm going to make it easy. I'm going to make something that they can touch, that they can look at, that they can smell, that they can be around, that they can get the shirt. You know, and I'm going to make two of them. I'm going to put one in Bethel, which, by the way, is still um, there, there's sort of remains, but there's the one in the north, in the far north. It's always oh, convenient. Tell Dan you can actually see the the structure of that building, of that uh, altar to this day. I think you actually we've been there. Now, points this: somewhere down the line, you trade a god you can't see for something you can touch, or for something you can hear. I know God loves me, but I would really love to hear someone else. I know that God cares about me, but I'd really love to see that on someone's face. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be loved. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be held until you trade God for it. And so what's interesting is this was the original sin of the northern where they departed from God for something they could grab a hold of. Does that make sense? I dare say it'll probably be the slip road for your departure too. Something happened that was tangible, and you embraced the tangible over the God you couldn't. And you know what's interesting is, God keeps taking us back to that. And I think He'll do that with us too. He'll be like, remember that moment when you left me? Is it still 
what you thought it would be now. And you got the money now. You got the thing. You're holding on to it. But is it satisfying like you thought it done? Is it fulfilling like you thought it would be? And you're like, no, yeah, it's cool, it's cool, it's cool. So then you live more of that divided life, and then God takes you back there again, and He goes, what about now? It failed you. What about now? It's still, and you know, and we know we're ignoring it. We know that we're bailing on the concept of the reality that God's the only thing that's fulfilled. And God's not trying to be mean. He's not trying to be curt in all of this. He's trying to love us. So he's like, let me tell you what encapsulizes this guy's life. You ready? He did just like the, just he followed suit just like everybody else that embraced the tangible over God. He did evil. The word evil is ra. And ra, by the way, means adversity or harm. By the way, forgive the grammar, but it's important to know that everything is, there's a mood and there is a tense. And that's it in the Hebrew for, for verbs. A tense, by the way, it's only two. So that's easy to remember. It's either perfect or imperfect. Perfect means it's done. Imperfect means it's not done. But the moods are important. Like something could be stated as a fact, it could be a command, or there's something called piel. And piel means intensively. Oh, it's intense. Now the reason I say that is this is cal and perfect when it says he did evil. In other words, he did evil as a fact, and he just didn't stop doing evil. He followed the word therefore, it's with achal, it means he walked behind. Cal and perfect. He, he made a choice to do it, and he kept doing it without stopping. He kept choosing it. And he didn't veer. The word depart, suer, which means, and by the way, again, cal. But it's interesting when it says he didn't depart, it's in the perfect tense. He made a permanent decision. He would not veer off of the road of following destruction. He's like, he never stopped doing evil. He never stopped following that destructive route because he would just committed to not departing from it. God will take you back to that point of departure. Do you know what happens? God takes away his protection. Verse 3. He heard the Lord was aroused against Israel and he delivered him into the hand of Hazael. Hazael, by the way, I remind you, murdered the king before that point in Syria. His name, by the way, oddly enough, was Ben-Hadad, Ben-Hadad. He did it by actually putting a cloth on his face that was wet and suffocated him. Or drowned him, I guess it all depends on what the cloth, but the cloth appeared to be suffocating. You know what the weirdest part to me about it is? He names his son ben Hudad. Do you murder a guy and then name your son the guy you murdered? That's just funky to funky level. But that's where this guy is at. Now, notice it says that God delivered him into this guy's hand. He's wicked, he's cruel, but he's still... In God's hands. Listen, God is so smart and so powerful, even the wickedest thing is still a tool in his belt. If God ever lets the enemy even talk to you, it's because God can use that for your good. Now, why did God let this king of Syria start beating Israel into the ground? You know why? Because God wants you miserable when you're running from him. If God really loved you, why would he want you happy without him? If God actually let you be okay without him, I'd start to wonder whether he cared. So put this in your own life for a moment. And as I'm putting it in mine, 
Hasael, by the way, had been told all the way back in 1 Kings 19 with Elijah and Eliyah, the first guy, been prophesied by Elisha in 2 Kings 8, suffocated to take the reign of that place in that same chapter. But notice what it says. This Yehoahaz, wicked jerk of a king, who just does exactly what the previous kings have done to fight God, and said he still pleaded with God. Do you see that in verse 4? The word pleaded, by the way, for what it's worth, is again, it's in the imperfect. In other words, he pleaded and kept pleading, but it was in the PL. Remember, PL means intensive. In other words, he didn't just be like, hey God, it'd be really cool if you delivered me. He's like, God, help. You ever have those moments? Where things suck so bad in your life. You are so miserable. You are so despondent. You finally cry out to God. God is getting what he wants out of this, which is you. But here's the problem. And please hear my heart in this. If it's just the circumstances that cause us to cry out to God, the moment the circumstances lessen, we'll leave. Here's the weirdest part. What's the most important thing to God about me? A relationship. That's the most important thing to Him. If the only time you cry out to Him and spend any time with Him is when your life is rough, why would He ever make your life great? Mm-hmm. If the only time you cry out to Him is in a trial, why would He ever want to take you out of Him? Mm-hmm. But if the trial, it's just the misery of the moment that causes you to cry out, you're going to need a lot of miserable moments to have any relationship with God. You know, I remember writing a song when I was younger called Through the Blessing. Because I realized through Scripture, the moment that Israel gets so blessed, like me, is the easiest time to depart from God and not know it. Not at least immediately. The whole idea of the song is, God, if I would leave you in blessing, don't bless me. I would prefer for you to bless me and to love you for it. Could you make me that kind of person? God doesn't want you miserable for misery's sake. God just wants you. It'll take you how He can get you. So He cries out to God, and notice it says in verse 4 that the Lord listened to Him. For He saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Assyria oppressed them, and the Lord gave Him a deliverer. We don't even get the guy's name. So they escaped under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents before another. It was like the good old days. He raised up a guy, we don't even get his name. The temporary repentance lasts as long as the misery lasts. I mean, wouldn't it be great if the thing that bothered us the most was how much it would hurt God when we did something? And I'm speaking about myself here. Because I talk about a God that can be grieved, that loves me, that rejoices over me with singing, but also bangs over me and weeps over me in my, in my rebellion. But I want to remind you, there was nothing this king did that was ever good. We don't have recorded anything where the guy like had a brief moment of anything other than this. His life sucked so bad he cried out to God and God still blessed him. Yeah. Could 
you imagine? And, and you know, you're like, well, clearly that person must be saved. They cried out to God and God took them out of the moment. But were they crying with called soxhole confessions? We're like, God, I think I got that girl pregnant. God, I think I have this disease. God, I think I might have cancer. God, I think I might go to jail. It is amazing how many atheists turn Christian at that very moment. And yet, somehow God still in love gets them out of the moment. And then they went back to the way they were before and give credit to something else. Now it makes sense that somebody might want to do that if they're proud and they're fighting God, but that should never be us, should it? Mm -hmm. Do you have any friends like that? That they only are your friend when they have to hit you up for something? You know? Hey, I've got a little job for you in Jerusalem. Oh, thanks, bro. Um, No, that's stupid. The point is, is that somewhere down the line, wouldn't it be great? Well, let me ask you this. What would you rather be? Wanted or needed? What do you think? Why? Okay, sorry. Now God built you that way, right? I mean, there's, let's face it, when you're wanted, there's more of a choice. I mean, someone's choosing you. Yeah. Someone's choosing you, and they may have other choices. But when they need you, they may not have a choice. Yeah. So which one do you think God would rather? Mm -hmm. Like it or not, we need Him. Yeah. But He would love to be wanted. Nevertheless, verse 6, they didn't depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin, going back to that original sin. You know what? Even with God's deliverance, they didn't go back to the one thing that started them off this, this route with God. So God delivers them from the misery of the moment, but they will not give up that gold cow. I don't know what your gold cow is, or if you have one, but it would be great if you gave it up. They walked in him and the wooden image, which also remained in Samaria. The wooden image, by the way, Asherah. I don't mean to be crude, but let me just say the wooden image is actually a body part that half, well, almost half of this room does not possess. So fair enough. And it's usually about a story tall. That just, is it, does it sound weird to you? Because it is weird. It's a giant, yeah, you get it, stacked up, Obviously, with the purpose of giving people freedom to claim their own pleasure. Interesting. Even in God's deliverance, people are still committed to being the Lord over their own pleasure and not handed over to God. It is amazing how many people will be like, God, you can deliver me all you want, but this is something I will die fighting you over. God's like, I really don't want that. What you don't realize is how great God could have it. How great things could be if you handed it to him. But look at this king of Syria. Notice what it says in verse 7. He left of the army of Jehoahaz only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, 10,000 foot soldiers, for the king of Syria destroyed them and made them like the dust of threshing. Do you know what it says in 1 Chronicles 21 when David was king? That he had 1,100,000 men in Judah's sword, and Judah had 400,000, 70. A 470,000, that means he had over one and a half million men in an army. Now it's down to 
of this. And that, by the way, kings traditionally is an insult. But I look at this and I realize this is only a shadow of the fight you once had. Remember when you were a soldier for Christ? Like you would fight over his name. I'm not talking about being a jerk. But when you were like, nope, I ain't playing that way. He means too much. You would fight over that. Inside, you would not give in. And then somewhere when the divided heart happens, there's only like a shadow of that fight left at all. Well, then you know where they're at. So the rest of the acts of this guy, all that he did, they're written in Chronicles. We quoted that from First Chronicles when we talked about David's army. And he rested. With his, in, and by the way, then his son, Yoash, reigned in this place. And again, at this point, there's a Yoash in both sides. The 37th year of Yoash, the son of Yehoahaz, became king over Israel Samaria and guess what he did evil in the sight of the Lord didn't depart from the sins of Yeroboam the son of Nebat who made Israel sin but walked in him same three words guess what when it came to that original sin he didn't depart from that either and he kept going and he committed himself and just like the other one he would not depart in perfect tense he was committed to that destruction whether he knew it or not he was committed to it by the way that's how that's like that's all he's known for. You want to know about this guy? He was committed to not really letting God have everything. The rest of his acts, by the way, and how he fought with the guy in the south, you know, and it really, you can read that in, in the book of Chronicles. And then he rested and ultimately in the zero bones. Does that make sense? This is what we have in Yahu's dynasty. The product of a divided heart is quite simple. The product of a divided heart is you're always going to not know who's right and who's wrong anymore. And somewhere in it, the fight that you once had isn't there. So which means, by the way, if the fight that you once had isn't there, then the victory you once had isn't there either. Isn't it? And you know what? I, we can't stop here. <laughs> How would you, yeah, oh, yeah, let's go walk out feeling good. Let's read the rest of it, okay? And watch what happens. Because God is going to show you victory. And He's going to do it in such a cool way you can miss it at first. Because it starts with Elisha being ready to die. And then he says his last words, and they're funky last words for what it's worth. We're going to read around one more time, okay? Verse 14. Elisha became sick with an illness of which he would die. Then Yoash, the king of Israel, I remind you, that's an evil king in the north came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some bow and an arrow. So he took himself a bow and some arrow. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it and Elisha put his hand on the king's hand. That's a weird intimate moment right there. So the joint archery. Um, and he said, Open the eastern door and you open it. Then Elisha said, Shoot, and he shot, and he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians as affect to the Ephesians. Then he said, Take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground. So he struck the ground, struck three times, and struck. And the man of God was angry at him and said, 
You should have struck five or six times, then you would have struck Syria to get destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Then they let Elisha uh, die, and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was, as they were burying a man, that suddenly they spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Wouldn't that have been a crazy moment? God throws that in the middle of all this. And Hazael, the king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. Now Hazael, king of Syria, died, then Ben-Hadad, um, his son, reigned in his place. And he watched the son of Jehoah and captured from the land of Ben-Hadad the son of Hesai, the cities which he had taken out of the hands of Jehoah, his father by war. Three times he also defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. Okay, let's build this and have a little bit of fun and close this up tonight. Because this is the hope. And it's funky. It starts with this. You've got a sick prophet. By the way, it's been 45 years since Yahweh was anointed. Remember, it was Yahweh who had that son, had the son, had the son? And that was the last time you saw Elisha. Where in the world has he been for 45 years? Yeah. We actually don't know. But now he shows up, and the next time you see him, he's sick. And what's clear is, death is inevitable here. Hebrews 9.27, it says, It is appointed to men to die once. In other words, God is not into reincarnation. He's actually better into rege- regeneration. Now, he says, It is appointed unto man once to die and then to judgment. Now, get this. Death's inevitable. And the king, the wicked king, what happened to the king in himself? The king in the north shows up, he's like, oh, the chariots. Why the chariots? Because that guy's boss, Elisha's boss, Eliyah, was taken up in a chariot of fire, if you remember, Second Kings 11. So he's like, kind of looking, in other words, what he's saying is, you're dying, dude, you're dying. Well, you know, if he was at least from where I came from, that's how he would have said it. So Elisha says, now, we don't know what the sickness is, but he says, all right, this is what I need you to do. I want you to take a bow. So he takes a bow, now takes take some arrows, and he takes an arrow and he puts it in. And all of a sudden, the king and Elisha are hand in hand. Mm. Now I want to remind you, the king's responsibility is to keep the law. Mm. The prophet's responsibility is to prophesy. And the law and prophets have now joined hands to shoot an arrow. And they shoot it east. Why is that important? Because that's actually the direction of Asak, which is where he's talking. But notice... And this is easy to miss in verse 17. What does he call the arrow? The Lord's season? No, sorry. No, Our victory. Yeah, now don't miss this. There's a simple word you can miss, and that's the word and. Did you see that? The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. Uh, Wait a minute, so it's two things? The Lord's deliverance as a whole, and then the deliverance from Syria. In other words, what God's telling you is, I'm going to speak on two levels on this. Mm -hmm. The immediate and the distant. Mm There is a Hebrew saying, Very fundamental and something we often teach. 
Kitzat means a little to this day. When someone says, "Would you like something?" I'm like, "Would you like something to drink?" I would like something to drink. You know, and he's like, "Well, well, how about this?" And you're like, "Kitzat." So I said, "A little bit, please." Kitzat means a little. Po means here. It also means uh, Kung Fu Panda, but that's entirely different. So, Kitsapo means a little here. Ma'od means more. Sham means there. So literally means a little here, more there. And the idea of it is, God gives you a little hint of something now that will be very much borne out later. For instance, Nero, madmen, Nebuchadnezzar, madmen, crazy men. They were, and then you, you see Hitler and you're like, this could be the Antichrist. And he's like, well, this is another hint of it. But the real Antichrist... It's going to make these guys look like nothing. Mm-hmm. But the idea of it is, it's a little bit here, but a lot later. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. The reason I say that is, he's showing us something in this situation, for the moment, and that would be the deliverance from Syria, mm-hmm. but he's showing us something even in a greater sense, of greater deliverance, mm-hmm. and that's the Lord's deliverance. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So here's what it is. It starts with this, that the law and the prophets have to join hands to shoot this arrow. Mm-hmm. They have to be in agreement. That's where this starts. The one who keeps the law and the one who speaks the prophets. Then I'd say these are the best examples of that. So he says, alright, now ready? This is what I need you to do. Take the arrows and strike the ground. Now the arrow we already know is deliverance. And so imagine the king goes and he grabs it and he's like... Right? And Elijah's like, are you kidding me? First of all, how excited does deliverance get you? Think that through. If you're in that place where you veered off from God and God wants to deliver you, there should be something inside of you that goes a bit mental. Yeah. And he's like, smack the ground. And here's a general rule. When God tells you to do something, don't think pass, fail. Think get an A. And it's amazing when there's certain other people, when it's an audition, when it's a certain thing, you know I've got to give it all on this moment. And God's like, give it something. And you're like, let us never mistake God's kindness for low expectations. Because yeah. I've got a call on your life. Smack the ground with these things. Okay. He's like, what? That was it. Deliverance for you is smacking the ground like that a few times. And this is the best part. He goes, you know, you should have smacked that a few times, a few more times. If you'd actually given it your all, you would have total deliverance. And those were his last words. You never forget that moment. The guy dies in front of you. He's like, you should have given it your all, man. <laughs> Great. That's what I remember. Three. Now, by the end of this, we see the Katsako, that little bit, where three different times they attack and they get land back that had been taken and lost. Did you get that? Mm-hmm. So we see that Katsat Po. Does that make sense? But what he tells us is three deliverances in the ground isn't enough. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. You're following me on this. So, the law and the prophets have joined hands to shoot an arrow of deliverance. It is launched from both of them in agreement. And now it's three days in the ground? That's not a little weird to you? Three days in the ground? But it's not enough for total deliverance. Hmm. So then he gives us this crazy story. What's the crazy story? Well, the crazy story looks like this. There is a tomb. And in that tomb, there is a dead man. Uh But all of a sudden, a dead man is laid upon him and he's resurrected. (laughs) 
Should it surprise us that total deliverance, the deliverance of the Lord, looks like three days in the ground and then raising from the tomb? Standing on his feet? God's like, this is total deliverance. And he throws it right here over 700 years before Jesus is born as a baby. When God tells you to do something, beloved, hear the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But not everyone receives a prize. Mm. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. So this is not like just like the Jairus, the, the dead guy in the New Testament. It was already smelling a bit. Oh, Lazarus. Uh, sorry, Lazarus, not Jairus. Yeah. Who by now he stinketh after four days. <laughs> yeah, which clearly is testimony as well. I love that. That's where the King James shines. Which like stinketh. <laughs> now listen. What if God's deliverance is sitting right now for you? But he doesn't but it's more than just haphazardly smack in the ground. First of all, it's giving your all. But recognize Jesus isn't about just improving this. He's about killing something to resurrect something better. He is about killing something to resurrect something better. And I'm going to say this, God loves you enough to kill your cow. And even if what that is is something that is good that God gave you, but it's in the wrong place, well then God will kill the place and put it where it belongs. And if it's something that clearly doesn't belong altogether, let Him kill it in your life. Now, I'm not telling you you're like going out with somebody you shouldn't be and God's going to kill him. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you, there's got to be to kill the relationship between you two because the problem's the relationship. Mm-hmm. Because what God is is a jealous lover and He can't be jealous of something He doesn't want and the only thing He wants is you. And you know the result of what happens after three smacks in the ground and then a resurrection? You get your land back. All that land you lost. Talk about grace. God's like, you know, I could just let you at this point lose it all and never give you any of it back. And that would still be mercy. But notice what it says in our last verses. It says in verse 23, but the Lord was gracious to them. He showed them grace. You know how He showed them grace? He delivered them when they didn't deserve deliverance. And then He gave them their land back. What if God actually gave you a ministry back that was more fruitful and profound than it's ever been? What if God gave you a relationship back with Him that was more fruitful and beautiful than it's ever been? And your life becomes a song. And your walk becomes a dance. And I don't mean to over-romanticize it, but for me that makes perfect sense. And that everything in your life takes a different color. It takes a profound beauty. So what if tonight that changed? But it started by saying, all right, Lord, if this is the case, I am addicted to not giving my all. I am at a place where I have trained myself how to be a lazy sluggard when it comes to you. Where just life sucks, I cry out to you, you make it better, and then I wait for life to suck again, and I cry out to you, and that's my whole relationship with you. And the weirdest part about it is I'm blaming you. Like, you're the problem. But here I am smacking the ground like I just don't care. What if tonight God obliterated 
a duplicitous heart from us. I want to warn you, if you did, the circle of people that will really appreciate that will be a lot smaller than you think. And there will be a lot of people who call themselves Christians who are going to look at you and think you've gone mental and joined the cult. Because they'll be like, nobody loves God that much. And then prove them wrong. Because in the end of it all, you're going to spend eternity with one person in that person's face and you really want to have, you really want to do it well there. Because if you think somewhere God's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant to someone who's not been good and faithful, that would make God a liar. And you wouldn't respect him for it anyways. But what if that changed tonight? Could you imagine what would happen? What if you're like, I don't even know what that could be. I really don't know. I know that I'm not in the right place. Well, then what would happen if you dangerously prayed, God, kill my cow tonight? Are you ready for that? Call me crying. And they'll say, we should never have prayed that prayer. I'm like, yeah, but the product of it is to be close to Him. Could you imagine what could happen? You might fall in love with God all over again like He's fallen in love with you. Hey, and if you're in that spot, then I'd say, God, kill all the cows before I get to them. Because I, have, I already have a tendency to do that. I don't want anything to get in the way of us. You know, the best time to make the choice is before you get there. Have you learned that? Because when you get there in real time, the conviction's a lot harder unless you made it ahead of time. And this same God who was that committed to you to send His Son to die on a cross for you and me to pay for everything so that He could spend those three days in the earth so we could rise again and offer you a new life. It says, you want the res- power of a resurrected life? You can't have a resurrection without a death. If you let it die and He doesn't resurrect it, then it shouldn't be resurrected. But if you let it die and He resurrects it, it will be amazing. you pray with me? Oh God, you are so good. And here we are looking at guys' names that are hard to pronounce. Names that mean things like you remember and you keep your eye on and you burn. And you know. And God, I I can't speak for anyone here but myself, but I'm going to pray a dangerous prayer for me. And I pray that anyone that would be so led would dangerously say amen with it. Kill my cows. Kill any and every one of them. If there be anything that I would grab a hold of and I'd trade you for, it is never a trade up. Kill my cows. Kill my cows before I get to them, that I would want to embrace something that I, I'd let there just just blow up every slip road. That I would walk with you. And God, if there's anything you keep taking me back to and saying, Hey, this sin, not because you want to condemn me, but because I'm still holding on to it. 
give me the strength to let go the faith and to trust Lord that there is nothing that is good that you have been given and if you don't give it it's not good and Lord I hand you my identity I hand you my future I hand you my ministry I hand you my priorities please never let me put my family ahead of you this flock ahead of you any talent or skill ahead of you And even if I don't know what it is, you don't even have to show it, but you have the you have free reign to take and destroy. Or to resurrect, it could be something that's good, but I put it in the wrong place. I recognize this is a very dangerous prayer, but I also know it's the prayer you want to hear. And I'm praying it, Lord, not just because you want to hear it, but because I need to pray it. Forgive my wandering heart. Forgive my duplicitous heart. And have all of me. All of me, God, please, all of me. Even as you gave me all of you, have all of me. And may I walk out of here with a newfound passion and love for you. As I see your great grace exercised again, Lord, let it not be that the circumstances have to suck for me to call out to you. Let it not be that it just has to get so bad that all of my crying out to you happens in in misery versus in the joy of actually just knowing that I'm with you. I cry out because I'm desperate for you even when things are great. And I want to want you and not just need you. And when people freak out because of this conviction, remind me you'll never leave me. And I pray you would replace people that want me spiritually stunted with people who want me alive and full on for you. Resurrect in me that passion and love that I have for you when it's only you, you first, you all. And let tonight be a night that for the rest of my life things have changed because of it. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for paying for all of my shame and my sin and my guilt. Not just the stuff before I said yes to, but even the stupid choices I've made since. Thank you for spending that time in the heart of the earth and thank you for raising from the dead that you could give me this new life. I want to live this new life with you. No holes barred. And I want to walk following you as committed or more than these men were committed at walking to their own destruction. When they followed 
and didn't veer perfectly. I want to follow and not veer perfectly, but follow you and not veer perfectly. Let my life shine that way. And with that, Lord, bring the land back that you want to bring back and restore what you want to restore and let the rest die. And I'm not asking this because I've earned any of it. I'm asking this because you're gracious and long-suffering. And you abound in these. So I trust you. To search, see, destroy, resurrect, restore. I trust you in this. Have your way, I pray. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. If you agree, Amen. Oh,